Hello, you're very welcome to Pontification. I'm Chase Nova and... And I am Leon Kampowski. Leon Kampowski, who's that? Oh, we've, we've dug deep. It is the most obscure of Simpsons references. <laughs> okay, which one? It's the real name of the character who believed he was Michael Jackson. Oh, that's right. And he's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I started talking like this and everyone Exactly, me. yeah, that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, how has your week gone, Emma? How's things? Um, actually, this, this is a fine time to be doing this because I am a bit anxious. Oh, yeah? Yeah, Why I've so? had a right anxious week. Um, I guess because I'm not on top of my coping skills and I haven't okay. been being, you know, a diligent and responsible long-term mentally ill person this week. Yeah, that is the other part of being mentally ill is like you have to be responsible for yourself. But at the same time, like if you let it go, you're supposed to like not punish yourself for it. You're supposed to be yeah. good. I mean, that's it. I am. I, I'm definitely experiencing heightened anxiety, but, you know, that happens from week to week. Especially when there might be some mysterious global political event going on during mm. the taping of this podcast, though we'll refuse to name it for obvious reasons. Um, it's funny because what you're talking about leads straight into what our main subject of today is. Delightful. But before we get there, we'll have to go through our sponsors for this week. Oh good, who sponsored us? This week, Pontification is sponsored by Shiny Objects. Has the stress of coronavirus caused you to start developing crow's feet? Why not fully convert to the crow lifestyle? And when you do... Try shiny objects. Shiny objects. Glimmering comforts in a dark world. Caca! Caca! And that's for good cause. I feel personally attacked. Go on. <laughs> Ponsification is also sponsored by consumerism. Are you an empty soul living in a meat car with no sense of creativity or uniqueness? Try consumerism. With each item you buy, you'll give yourself motivation to continue voluntarily enslaving yourself for a faceless and a different world. Consumerism. Buy in, die out. (laughs) And of course, this podcast is brought to you by Thirsty Thursdays. Is your life so devoid of meaning and purpose that your only comfort is a bottle of Chardonnay on weekend evenings? You should try Thirsty Thursdays. Add an extra day of phlegmatic peace before it all starts again. And it will start again. It may never stop again. And finally, Pontification is brought to you by Giving Up. The realisation that every single system on this planet is controlled by people, the same people that think flipping a water bottle is an act of brilliance, is a scary thought to explore. I myself gave up somewhere in my mid-twenties, and I couldn't be more or less not explicitly sad or happy. That naked woman in the pond throwing hard-boiled eggs at the geese? She gave up, and she's never looked back, because she can't remember, so she can't look back. Giving up, for when caring is scary. (laughs) And that's all our sponsors for this week. Well, our sponsors are dark this week. I love it. They, they are, but that's part of this discussion. So uh, our topic for today, as far as I'm aware, is mental health. And, and sometimes the lack thereof. And sometimes the lack thereof, exactly. Yeah. Uh, before we start, I think we should distinguish between mental health and mental illness. So mm-hmm. now you correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that some mental health issues is someone who's suffering from um sadness or depression or anxiety because of external factors their life Mm. is going bad they're low on money they're having a bad time at school so they are suffering from mental health issues mental illness is when those are chronic conditions it's your own internal factors and you could be on top of the world you could win the lottery you'll still be depressed yeah absolutely that's that's my understanding and it is it's really important to keep a track of you know am i sad because 
I lost my wallet and it was my favorite wallet and now I feel sad because a bad thing happened? Or am I sad mm. because my brain is not producing serotonin at the rate it needs to in order for me to actually respond appropriately to the stimuli that I'm faced with? Yeah, of course. And actually, very importantly as well, is to recuse ourselves a little bit because we are not psychologists, we are not experts, so we won't be commenting on specific disorders like obsessive compulsive disorder, seasonal depressive disorder. We won't be talking bipolar disorder, another one. We won't be talking about any of those things. We're specifically going to talk about our own experiences because I've gone through depression and anxiety and I've gone through uh, some other issues as well. Emma, you've had issues with depression and anxiety before? Yeah, absolutely. Both. Yeah. So we're not going to be talking about um, how to deal with a specific conditions we're going to be talking about our experiences dealing with those two conditions primarily um, i mean yeah as first, per usual i just came here to talk about me yeah i understand that I, yeah. I, to be honest I, i'm not even sure why you have me on your podcast i think it's really weird i was sure that was the emma show featuring my lovely assistant chase and apparently it's poncification well it's because we both figured out that you're a ponce and you pontificate a lot so it made sense that's so weird. I thought that we figured that out about you. <laughs> Maybe that's why we called it for both of us. Let's, um, let's have a production meeting. <laughs> uh, okay, let's let's stay on topic here. I want to focus on something very important, which is that I think nobody really knows what the exact process is when you're dealing with things. I think there's a lot of mm. answers that are given to us in TV shows where, you know, either I had antidepressants and they gave me pills and they worked, or they gave me pills and they didn't work, and so I don't take pills anymore. Yeah, I think a lot of I'm actually guilty of having done this at one point in my life. And I know a lot of people who do this where you're like, okay, you know, I've acknowledged that I have difficulty with my mental health and I showed up to the doctor and they didn't just make it all better. Yeah. You know, and and to be fair, like if your leg is broken, they're just going to pop you in a cast. And if you have an infection, they're just going to pop you on antibiotics. I understand why people, myself included, go in with this expectation, but it is really important that we kind of start addressing that, not as a podcast, but as a society, that it's not going to be that straightforward. It's not going to be on off like a switch. This is the thing. I think if you ever meet someone who's overcome mental health conditions, not that I'm saying I have overcome mental illness or whatever, but I manage them pretty well. And that's kind of as good as you can hope for with these things. But I think if you ever meet someone who's doing really well, despite it, they've normally come around to, um, the idea that it's always an ongoing discussion. You know, the idea, and I'm actually, this will relate to the structure of what I think you should do to deal with these problems. I'm going to go through that now and I'll sort of relate it back to this. Mm -hmm. So the idea is there is no answer. Mental health is not an exact science. They cannot scan your brain for serotonin levels and see how much they need to up you by. It doesn't work that way. So what you do is if you're feeling these kind of feelings is you go to your GP and you tell them. Now, what'll probably happen is they might assess you and say, come back to me in two weeks, try exercising more. If that doesn't work, they might say, come back and try this pill, or they could put you on a pill the first time. But the important thing is that when your doctor puts you on a pill, take it for as long as they say, and take note of how you're feeling. And if it doesn't work or it doesn't help, contact your doctor and try again. It's always an ongoing discussion. It's never going to be as straightforward as, I took this and now I'm fine. It might be if you're really lucky, but it's unlikely because it's not an exact science. Um... If after a month or two, your meds aren't working, your GP's a bit confused, what might happen then is they refer you to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Then are things getting more serious? No, it's just that they want you to get as well as they can. And your GP is not a psychologist. Your GP's there for bumps and scrapes and little bits and bobs and all that. But psychologists, psychiatrists, they're the real deal. They'll sit you down. They'll talk to you. Um, I personally found counselling was recommended to me after a GP visit. 
and I had done antidepressants before and they hadn't worked. I find counselling's done a, a world of good, actually. I don't know about you, Emma. Did you have trouble with counselling? Um, yeah. So counselling doesn't sit that well with me. I don't respond very well to it, I suppose. <clears throat> and mm. fu- yeah, no, I can honestly say I have never managed to find a counsellor that I liked. I had briefly a good relationship with a psychotherapist, mm-hmm. which is a little different. Um, and yeah, I have, for me, wouldn't necessarily recommend it to others, but for me, I have kind of decided at this point that going it alone works for me. Yeah. And, you know, that that does exist. But I think before I came to that realization, God, I went through a lot of people. I went through a few counselors and a few different psychotherapists and two psychologists. And I was here and there in pillar to post because you don't always like your therapist. Sometimes, like, you just don't like them. Maybe they're highly qualified and they're very skilled and other people love them. But, you know, they're just not right for you. They have a distracting mole on their face or they used a word that you didn't like one time. Yeah. No, don't look at me like that. She did have a distracting mole on her face. That's fine. No, but I'm just raising the point here that, like, you are raising a very important point because it sounds like at least you have the knowledge to say, well, I'll try another counselor. Because many people will go, especially people, men especially, oh, yeah. who are very closed off emotionally, will go to counseling once and not get anything out of it and wonder why. And it's like... A lot of the time it's because you sat there and you didn't tell any, say any real feelings mm-hmm. or say what was going on or tell them a story. You went in and told them about your trip to the pub to watch the match on Saturday. Like, that's not going to give you emotional growth. Yeah. You know, at least you had the knowledge to say, I'm going to try another counsellor. And I would say to people who are trying counselling, like, if you feel after two or three sessions it's not working, then try another counsellor. Because counselling is just like anything else. It, it's got to be like a friendship almost. Yeah, know? absolutely. And... I actually, I would liken it nearly to finding a business partner. Yeah, very much so. Like you, you're going on a venture together and explore. Well, yeah. even go, you're going on a, a group holiday, you know, you're going to explore the inner annals of your of your psyche. You know, it's a it's a deep journey to take and it's very important you trust the person going with you. So my personal favorite instance of uh, breaking up with a therapist is the one who was... It, she was very into what I like to think of as a bit of woo. Right. Which is fantastic for some people. It's not my jam. And so she... When you say a bit of woo, are you talking like overly congratulatory or... Yeah. Okay. So she was very like, oh, you know, don't think yucky thoughts that are making you feel bad. And encouraged me to actually physically give myself a hug. Which, if you <laughs> know what... That's a valid thing. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I do. I often pat myself on the back. Like I do. I love patting myself on the back for a job well done. All too often. It is important. Like self-praise matters. Patting yourself on the back is important and it works for me. What doesn't work for me is giving myself a hug and having, I guess, my, having my therapy experience more focused on that kind of nurturing approach. So yeah, she said, okay, Emma, just... You know, you seem to be getting a little agitated. I want you to take a breath, give yourself a big hug and let go of these feelings. And I stopped her and I was like, I'm sorry, could you be a little bit more, I don't know, scientific? But that's a, was this a counsellor or a psychotherapist? This is a psychotherapist. So I was okay. barking up the wrong tree, to be honest. 
I yeah. In my experience, I find psychotherapists are they're very into you know your practice of mindfulness. Yeah. And your habit of journaling. Yeah. And your giving oneself a hug and your mantras and stuff like that. And I think I had gone in there wanting to describe some trauma and get weird with it. Real battle royale of mental health. And it's not what I got. But yeah. Well, this is actually, this this raises the important point, which is that, as I said, in the same way that it's an ongoing conversation and you're going through all these different treatments trying to find the right one for you, it is very much about what your goals are. So in you saying, I want to go in and deal with all these traumas, but maybe that psychotherapist sensed, I think you're through these traumas. I think they all happen and they're all awful, but it sounds like you want to deal with this for the sake of indulging in it rather than going in there and hoping for a cure, you know? And them finding you a mantra or talking to you about your journaling or whatever is them trying to find a process in which you are able to cope with these things on a day-to-day basis and live and with them. Again, you know? I'm not saying this person was bad at psychotherapy. But that's not what I want. And I think... To be fair, what you get from a mental health care professional is not always going to be what you want. God, no, isn't that the truth? Oof. Oh, if I went to a psychologist, like, I'm wanting volume and, like, a massage. <laughs> and, then it, and then I leave there and they're like, here, you should take these antidepressants. I was very disappointed. But, but that's the whole nature of it, though. Like, is like, if you're doing therapy and you're probing your un- subconscious mind and all that mm. sort of stuff, you're going to reach a lot of places that you're not fully aware of now. Absolutely. And this is actually really important. I'm seeing a lot of what I like to call toxic positivity online lately this you know that's just you being a curmudgeon that's just (laughs) i hate when people are happy all the time i do i hate when people are happy all the time and i mean that and i'm gonna justify it and defend it now good luck i'm seeing a lot of give yourself a hug and a lot of you know you're healing you are being your best self you are bright and you know what sometimes healing actually isn't instagram ready and more often than not, in my experience, it is you on your hands and knees on the floor, putting snot in the carpet, making animal noises, because you have just remembered something that you didn't want to. And now you have to process that and deal with it and kind of put a pin in it for a while. The process of healing, the process of being introspective and looking inside yourself, and I guess preparing what your best self is going to be, can be really ugly and can be really painful. Mm. Um, I'm not seeing enough promotion of that side of it. Well, I mean, yeah, there's nothing wrong with doing acid and howling at the moon if you want to discover yourself. But (laughs) one thing that is kind of important to look at is that if you're doing therapy, right, it's not always about probing into what your innermost childhood trauma or the most painful thing you have to. It's about you went there looking for help because you look at a place you want to be and you look at where you are and you don't know how to get there. Mm. So that psychotherapist might believe that it's important to probe these things and get to them. But like my experience, and I've been with my cancer now for to just over a year, maybe 13, 14 months, was that same thing. I went in and said, this is where I want to get. I'm having problems with this now. What do we do? And the process has led to us discovering some stuff in my childhood, sure. Yeah. But it's always come about naturally. It's not come about of me going in there like, I remember the thing. <laughs> It's not like that at all. It's talking about your present day and your week and then relating that back to why you might have acted in a certain way or something. It's it's very much about reflection than it is um, mining. 
Do you know what I mean? But this exact, honestly, I think it kind of boils down to I'm not that keen on being in the same room as another person. Just oh, in yeah, general. That's, that's another aspect. Zoom yeah. cancelling is very much a thing these days, I'll tell you that much. I'm not that it keen helps. on being here with you now, my darling. <laughs> um, when were you? We're good friends. Don't look at me like that. Yeah, I am a good, good friend a to you, word. Chase Nova. Good, sure. kind, and supportive. Like a decent brassiere. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, actually, is, this is interesting, though. Yeah. So there is something, because I think at, like, at least some degree of our having bonded as friends was definitely over both having, a, let's call it a complex mental health history. True. Well, I, uh, okay. Yeah. I want to take this moment to like give you credit as someone who has been really, really good in my personal support system, and someone who like I've reached out to, can talk to. Like I feel, I feel safe with you. You know. Uh, thanks. No, I, I, I'm delighted. That's the case. Like I think, I like I have my own history. Like I mm. have done the serious, insane level of mental health difficulties. I've been in a psychiatric ward. I've I've been with the with the the crazies as people call them. Ooh, and all that stuff. They're Spooky. just people. Spooky for for a a post Halloween episode, I suppose. But because I've done that, I think what happens after you go through that is you immediately see other people like this and. and you want to help even if it's just little things like you're not going to run down the street going are you depressed i'm ready for you here take these you're not going to go do that but you, oh my god you should get a cape i have several okay well you should get a cape you should line band. it with flyers I, then i have more capes than most superheroes superman borrows mine when his washing's full okay but do you have more capes than most people have had to hot dinners um Doubtful. Okay, well then you're not a real rock star, are you? Let's move unless along. Unless you live in ice. Unless you live in ice, <laughs> then maybe. Um, so but you yeah, actually had some interesting queries about linguistics around this stuff. Oh, yeah. And actually, I gotta say, I had a little flinch while you were speaking. So oh. something I noticed in the past few weeks is I keep saying the word insane when the word yeah. I mean is bizarre. Like... I will see someone doing a really bad job of parking. Instead of going, oh man, your man is shit at parking. I'll go, look at that. That's absolutely insane. That is insanely bad. And I'm actually making myself a bit uncomfortable. I'm now stopping and going, ooh, is that ableist? Should I tone I mean, it down? You, you, are, you are moderately woke policing yourself, which is fine. I think it's important to which, have that attitude. Yeah. So like I myself have technically been insane. I have been in a psychiatric ward. I have uh, been in a place where I was unable to perceive reality correctly, um, partially through my fault, partially through underlying mental health conditions. It's a, it's a whole kettle of fish there. But from that, like, I don't take any insult to the idea of insane because it's a, it's a clinical term, not a derogatory term. To say that something is insane means that it's incapable of perceiving reality. And of course, the problem is because we all have our own individual realities, we look at someone else, say someone who's terrible at parking, Mm -hmm. and then say, oh, they can't perceive reality correctly because they are incapable of parking properly. So I don't think it's an incorrect term. I think it's just that it's a clinical term. Like if you talk about, you know, the crazies or their mental or whatever that sort of crap is. Yeah, that's a bit derogatory. But I don't see that problem with insanity, as it were, because it's a very specific definition. Fair enough. And I just want to take this moment to 
out myself because I do definitely use crazy as well. Yeah, again, crazy can also just be like, you know, like Beyonce said, crazy in love. <laughs> but, you know, yes, I am. I'm absolutely I'm woke policing myself and I'm in real danger of starting to woke police others. Any day now. But that's the point. Any isn't, isn't day that basically now. How you, that's how you spend your days. You go out in the streets and tell everyone how they're being offensive. That's that's what the woke people that do. That is what it? I do, which reminds uh-huh. me. I will be over on Thursday to get a lend of a cape. Oh, cool. Yeah, I got one there yeah. for you. I've got Great, more than thanks. most people have had cold dinners. Wonderful. Um, yeah, but you know, I think it is important to acknowledge that whether we intend it or not, when we use stigmatizing language, we are perpetuating stigma. Like, it is a pretty cut and dry thing. And okay, I could probably line up yourself and 15 others who have had these specific experiences of being actually, by definition, insane, and go, mm-hmm. oh, buddy, that story was crazy. Oh, buddy, your pants are crazy. Oh, man, your hair looks insane today. And probably nine people are going to go, yeah, all right, my pants are a bit weird, whatever. But there is always that chance that the 10th person is going to go, oh, that hurts my feelings a bit. Am I not normal? And am, am I this othered is, by this? This this is a darker take on it, and I guess it comes from having been inside or whatever. But like been inside, I, darling, you weren't in prison. Psychiatric wards are not that far off, Emma. When you get into them, like you are locked away. You've got your own bed. You you don't get shoelaces. You don't get a belt. It's the whole it's the whole shebang. It's it's not that far off. At least you have psychiatric nurses looking after you, but like they are very overworked and very mm. underpaid. People who work in there are, are some of the nurses were amazing. They really love their job and do an amazing job, but they're they're tired, and you do have that experience in there. But I think just to make a point there is that like when I was in that state of mind, I didn't consider myself insane. Mm. It's quite the opposite. Like the definition of insanity, they always say is doing the same action over and over again. But I think it's more like you're you're watching the world go insane while you just feel but everything's fine. Why is everyone else mental? That's, that's what happens. Like that's the exact concept. And it's a very, very strange, um, mindset to be in. So for that reason, if you called me crazy while I was in there, Mm. I was insane enough to not interpret that reality correctly. And so I probably wouldn't have taken it as a derogatory term. Yeah. So funnily enough, this actually is something that I can relate to because having not been inside, I guess we're (laughs) going with that now. Sure. Um, Why not? But I have, I've definitely experienced like dysfunctional, delusional thought. And specifically what Mm -hmm. I kind of want to talk about is I have an extensive history of intentional self-harm. It's something that I struggled with for a very, very, very long time. And it's also how I discovered that if I talk for long enough, I can just make people believe things. At the very least, I can make them leave me alone. I know you can do that. Yeah, Um, (laughs) because the lengths to which you can backflip and rationalize your own behavior when you're in that situation and when it seems like the obvious choice to you at the time, I think are kind of fascinating to reflect on. And there was, there was definitely a time when I was able to sit myself down and go, okay, listen, a lot of people like think it's a bad thing that I'm cutting myself, but I'm going to keep doing it. And it's actually really good for me. And here's why. And quite frankly, all those people who want me to stop, they're ridiculous and they're wrong. And they don't see this wonderful secret that I have. 
this raises a very interesting point that I think is really important because as we were saying before with the way the process goes and you going in there, like if you go in there thinking they'll give me a pill, they'll sort me. One, that's unrealistic. Two, I think in that mindset, you don't want to change. You just yeah. want to be fixed. Absolutely. And when you're rationalizing that stuff to yourself, that's not you wanting to change. And you, you kind of can't help someone who's in that place because they... They don't want to change. They have no interest in it. As I said, the whole point of you going to get help from a mental health care professional is that you're going to tell them who you want to be and where you are now, and they will try and help you get there. But that's as much as they can do. Like, a lot of the job is on yourself. And in the same way, I think what you're raising there is that you're able to rationalize that behavior yourself, but the way that you sort of conquer that rationalization is by developing a kind of mindfulness routine. It's, this- it's about... I love this. Yeah, when you yeah, were talking, you yeah, I was literally just going to be like, let's do mindfulness, sure. Chase. Let's let's go. Yeah, cool. We can do mindfulness. Do you want to start or will I? Um, I want to actually, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and lead on this because I want cool. to address the fact that the word mindfulness just sprang up. I mm-hmm. don't remember it being there. Maybe it was there and I wasn't looking at it, but I don't remember it being there. And then it was everywhere. And it took a very long time before anyone actually explained it to me. Mm-hmm. I I have witnessed people just actually quit on therapy because they couldn't find a satisfying definition yeah. for the word mindfulness. And I think people are kind of building it up to be something more than what it is. So as far as I understand, the definition of mindfulness is just reaching a state of being aware of oneself. Yes, which is a, it's a very, very broad way mm. of phrasing what I think it is. Um, if I was to elaborate on it further, right, there, there's kind of different types of mindfulness. In the same way that if you talk about rock, you could be talking about a rock shandy, you could be talking about a rock candy, you could be talking about a genre of music, you could be talking about a geologist wet dream, you could be talking about all of those things. But when you're talking about mindfulness, you can talk about it from a Taoist standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, from um, just a physical standpoint. Um, and I'm going to go into a few of those a little bit. So if you're talking about physical mindfulness, that's being completely aware of your body. And, and that's kind of... It's very difficult to do. Like there are people that meditate for for tens of years to get to a stage where they are aware of every inch of their body and can mm. feel it at all times. Like the amount of times we'll sit there and we'll have our hands clenched or, you know, we're sitting the wrong way on our leg and we don't notice it. Or even you had a nap before this and you woke up uncomfortable on your back because yeah. you weren't mindful of your back when you went to sleep. Absolutely. I woke up like a yeah. crunchy leaf because like, I, it's exactly like, that. I just didn't like slow down. Like the sleep down. gods had given you a full Nelson absolutely completely that (laughs) someone had pretzeled my spine during my rest and it's because I should have had the foresight to go okay I'm gonna lay myself down Mm -hmm. I'm gonna create a space where I can rest in like in my home but also inside myself and then I'm going to rest yeah done and I didn't I said okay I'm gonna get comfortable on the couch I'm gonna curl up put my legs underneath me and I'm just going to doze off for like five minutes. And I wound up sleeping like a pretzel for an hour and a half. And I actually think it's a really good allegory for mental health. And certainly for my mental health personally. Mm-hmm. Because I I do tend to, you know, break up with my therapist because they won't get serious about it. <laughs> <laughs> or I, you know, get cross at myself because I was super depressed yesterday. Mm-hmm. 
And then I made time. I was like, oh, tomorrow I'll spend time on being depressed and I'll figure out why. But then you actually wake up okay. You're like, damn it. The hard thing about being depressed is that I'm not it anymore. Miss but the that's, boat. I mean, what you're talking about there is you're engaging in a certain level of mindfulness anyway, because mm. you're saying, oh, well, I felt depressed today. I can't, I don't have time. I've got work to do. I've got to pick up my kid from school, whatever. You've got to do that sort of stuff. So you're putting aside that time to be mindful of what your illness, your, um, your affliction is that day. You know, sometimes making that decision is enough. Sometimes it's a great help, but this is why I'm trying to illustrate the different types of mindfulness to you. Mm. So that is one type of being aware of your body. The second type is kind of difficult for me to explain because for me personally, it was quite a unique experience and I haven't heard many echo it back to me. So I'm going to try and put it in my own words in a pragmatic way and hopefully either yourself, maybe you'll take something from this Emma or maybe someone listening will, Mm -hmm. which is that sometimes you have to be mindful of what your goals are when you set them in going for help. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in my daily decisions, I have a little bit of a sort of minor alcohol problem. You know, I will decide, oh, I'm going to drink three days this week instead of the usual one or even not drinking at all that week. Yeah. And that's because I'm not thinking, oh, I need to be on form on Monday or Tuesday to do this podcast, or I've got to study on Monday morning. And you think of that, you go, ah, screw it. Like that's, that's an, that's the example of not being mindful. It's not take, it's being mindful of not only your existence, but your future and being mindful of the fact that it's in your control to do so. Mm -hmm. So when you say being aware of oneself, it's a hell of a broad definition, but it literally means to be aware of like your physical self your emotional self? Are you putting yourself in touch with your sadness, your happiness? Are you allowing yourself to experience those moments uninhibited? You know? So I actually want to share with the group a piece of advice that you gave me a long time ago. Oh, okay. That's going to be good. I'm going to run now. Do. Like, duck. Um, So it was actually Chase who introduced me to the concept of mindful driving. Don't like all of your driving should be mindful all of the time. You know, just be careful. Don't kill people. That's important. But the, I I think I was already doing it. I think I mentioned it to you in passing. I was like, ah, Chase, you know, I took a drive. I was alone in the car. I had to Hmm. focus on the road. I had to look in front of me. I had to move my feet. I had to move my hands. I didn't have time Hmm. to sit down and be miserable. And it actually gave me the space to clarify a lot of the dysfunctional thoughts I was having. And you were like, okay, you know, that's a thing. And I do, I just want to share it with the group. It may not work for you. It definitely helps me. Sometimes just if you are someone who drives, if you're not, you know, have a walk or a jog or a wheel or a cycle or whatever it is that you do. But sometimes you need to move in order to think. Sometimes you have to get the body involved in the brain's processes because that repetitive action and that focus on what your feet are doing, on what your hands are doing, does create a little pocket where you get to incubate your thoughts. Yeah, and that is kind of what mindfulness meditation is, right? Mm. So, so if you talk about people who are stressed and they say they were cured by running, they weren't cured because they got more energy or they started exercising more. Sometimes they were, and maybe you just needed those endorphins. It's very rare, though. What's normally happening is, is that in that moment of them running, they're kind of engaging with their body on a very physical level. The brain and the body are reconnecting because your brain's constantly churning out, run, 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 move left foot, move right foot. And your mind at the same time is quietening down because you're doing that. And that kind of is in itself a form of mindfulness meditation. 
Um, I personally do not exercise that much. I'm a lazy shy, basically. I don't like doing it. But uh, actual meditation, I try and make room for about three times a week. I will take maybe an hour on a Monday and one on a Wednesday and one on a Sunday. And the idea is just to stop, be aware of your breathing. And I try and picture... One of the techniques that I do is I try to picture a sort of light shining in each of my individual toes and both feet and then all the way up my legs and all the way up my torso and down my arms. And Yeah, because that puts you in touch and with your body in such a, a real actually, way. Actually, if, if for whatever reason you're listening and you want to try that, YouTube it. Just go yeah. ahead and type in guided meditation audio. And there, there is so much free stuff online and some of it is really bad and some of it is great, but it's not right for you and that's fine. But there are nuggets of gold out there, which actually leads into something that I want to mention. Just before you do, though, I was going to mention that if you are doing that, don't do the guided meditation that was done by Gilbert Gottfried. It's, it's terrifying. There's a guided it's, meditation by Gilbert Gottfried. Now feel the light going up and down your spine. It's terrifying. Don't do is it. Is this a joke or it's does a this joke. exist? It's a joke. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Oh, my God. <laughs> now breathe in Ooh. deep and then out through your nose. <laughs> the idea of that being something that's out in the universe is actually scarier than going to therapy for the first time. I, I think actually from a comedic perspective, I'd really enjoy listening to Gilbert Gottfried, not to meditate myself, but just to listen to him trying to get people to meditate. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to raise you Joe Pasquale. Who's Joe Pasquale? What does he do? Oh, uh, honestly, when you did your impression of Gottfried, you nailed Joe Pasquale. Oh, that hurts. He's <laughs> <laughs> sorry. He's an English actor with a very high-pitched voice and a very specific brand of comedy. Oh, okay. Um now, so I do want to mention access. Mm-hmm. Because right now I am luckily in a position where, you know, if I need to go to therapy for an hour this evening, that's fine. My husband has a kid, whatever. Mm -hmm. There was a time, probably the time when my mental health was the worst, is when my kid was new. I was alone with him. Mm. It was just he and I living together. Um, And I was attachment parenting. And I had taken on this thing that is very intense and very big Because I thought it would somehow counter the postnatal depression that I was experiencing at the time, which it turns out in hindsight, postnatal depression is something that you need to discuss with your doctor. Yeah, very much so. And it is, it's very dark and it's very scary and it's not in any way a nice thing to experience. And I think more so than any other, let's call them hiccups in my mental health, that is, I, I, let's, let's speed get diminutive bumps. for speed, a moment. Speed bumps, let's say, yeah. Yeah, yeah, little blips. Mm, little blips. Um, yeah, that is one that I think needed to be addressed professionally the worst. Yeah. And I didn't have the time, I didn't have the money, I didn't have childcare. I wasn't in a position at that time to go pack up my stuff. And to be honest, even if I was, even if it had been easy for me, I don't think I would have. I think I was too scared and I don't think I was ready. I don't think I was in a good place to submit myself and say, I'm sick and I need help. Yeah. And during that time is when I was walking with the buggy a lot, just pushing a pram up and down hills all day long to try and keep the kid asleep. 
let's be honest. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people with small babies do it. Um, And it was also a time when I was doing a lot of exercise and doing a lot of yoga and doing a little meditation and stuff like that. And those things became so important for me as, I'm just going to call a spade a spade, as a very disadvantaged single parent. Because they were things that I could control, that I could access, that I could do inside my house, that I could learn about for free on the internet. Yeah, definitely. And this actually, I mean, it kind of does filter down into something you did want to bring up before, which is that how it does, uh, how mental health uh, treatments can often have a much different effect on people who are in uh, sort of on the fringes of society or even on the fringes of the income levels as well. Absolutely, because I think I think it would be really unfair of us if we had this whole conversation and didn't acknowledge that some of the people who are most at risk, particularly in Irish society, are they're those people, they're vulnerable communities. Yeah. They are people in the traveller community. They are people of colour. They are people who have been ostracised and who have been discriminated against. And people living in direct provision are a fine example of this. Yeah. Because quite often our approach to mental health, our approach to treatment... It has to be, you have to teach to the middle of the class. You have to research the average human being. You have to do what your funding allows sometimes. And we wind up not adequately providing resources for people who do exist on the fringes of society and who do get left behind again and again and again and again. The more they get left Mm -hmm. behind the more they need support and the less it is available to them. See, I think this is actually a a bigger picture thing too, because yeah, one, there's not really enough resources. And because we're sort of aiming for the middle and trying to get higher than that, you miss out on people that one, don't have the income to afford it because like mental health coverage Mm -hmm. isn't quite free in this country. It's still a lot of it is private. Um, If you're talking about communities like different ethnicities, say like people who are into direct provision or recent immigrants, like you're talking about, say an Irish counsellor, maybe raised in a secular household, likely raised in a Catholic household, trying to counsel someone who's crossed the sea from Syria. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a hell of a difficult thing to accomplish because even the professionals who are working in mental health treatment are people who were trained in how to, oh, what's the best way of putting this? Were trained in how to, con, you know, treat people into getting them to a place where they're able to live and work in an Irish society. Or a Western society. Yeah. So there's a reason that, like, even the practices there can be flawed, and acknowledging that is very important. And I find that most of the mental health professionals I've dealt with are very good at acknowledging that. They'll say, this mm-hmm. isn't a patient for me, and they will try and find someone who suits it better. But for that reason, like, people who are on the fringes, uh, much like I said, the refugees, or I think you were talking, we were talking before this about the, the traveling community as well. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing, is because... They're going to professional and the professional can't help them because they just don't have the experience, you know, especially someone who's working in a public sector, you know? Yeah. And it's really important to bear in mind as well. So a lot of the people who are in vulnerable communities, they don't have the same resources and they're not going to start paying 60 euros an hour to see a private therapist. They're just not. They don't have it. It doesn't exist for them. And so now we are handing them out to public services, which are really, they're overworked, they're underfunded. Mm -hmm. There's often wait lists quite like, so I live in Wexford. I don't know if everyone knows that. And for the past few years, there has been no 
Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services yeah. in Wexford. It doesn't currently exist. We don't have it. Which means if you're in a situation where you have a young person or child in your family who needs support, you just get put on a list and apologise to. And that's it. That's what they give you. Now, don't get me wrong. There are avenues and people are you know, going into other counties and we're getting outreach work and stuff like that. But it's very, very difficult to access. Yeah. So by the time you take this person who is vulnerable, who belongs to a culture other than what the therapist, counsellor, whoever the professional they're seeing has personal experience of. We're not just giving them to someone who can't relate to them. We're giving them to someone who is too exhausted to actually sit down and try to relate to them and research what they would need to do and upskill to do it. Or even put them into a position where like they're reaching out despite like the input of their community and their best impulses because they feel as mm. if they want to try this avenue. And the second they do is is they go there and they're put on a waiting list and they're told, yeah, it'll be six months, it's going to cost you 70 quid. And they're like, well, fuck that. Yeah. There's actually, do you know what, there's a film um, and it's obviously, it's set in New York. It's a different one from a while back, but it's worth thinking about it's called gridlocked and it's kind of a black comedy mm-hmm. it's uh i think it's wesley snipes um oh, who's the, who's the woman from westworld that's made i don't know oh oh her name will come to me wonderful british actress um and tim roth and the whole plot of it is their their mutual friend the actress i forget her name it's going to drive me insane after this i'll throw it in an edit on the end of the podcast um is there two of them, their friend dies of a drug overdose and the two of them spend their entire two days trying to get into a rehab center because they feel they need to quit. They need to quit as much as they can. Okay. And they go to the welfare office in town. They say, sorry, it's a, it's a two week waiting period. They're like, no, no, we're going to use tonight if we don't get in here. We need help. And they go to another one and they find there's another free rehab clinic and they get there and they go, oh, this one's actually $200. And the whole film is a black comedy just journeying the fact that there's two people who have a heroin addiction, who want to get help and spend Mm -hmm. three days of their lives walking around trying to get help and it just can't be found. And that's that's a very important point to think because I think we live with that idea that if someone wants to get help, they can get it because they're working better for themselves and that's ingrained in us. But it isn't that simple at all. No. So really quickly, Thandie Newton. Oh, Thandie Newton. I love her in so many things. She was in Run Fat Boy Run as well. But this brings me to another point, which is that um, if you do analyse suicide rates in the world, uh, people are always kind of baffled because it's often people who demonstrated um, quite a lot of promise in school and education that people who would be considered highly intelligent and successful. Um, You may have read something about that. There's a lot of people talk about, you know, if you have depression, it's normally because you're a higher intelligent individual. That kind of is a bit wishy-washy, but in terms of suicide, yeah, there is actually a big correlation between the two. And this is where I kind of want to talk about the concept of hypersanity. Okay. Are, are you aware of the concept? Have you read much about it? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't really know where you're going with this. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a weird one. And it's such a weird concept. So I'm going to tell you how I heard about it first, and then we'll get into it, right? Okay. So it originally emerged from the character of DC Comics, The Joker. I just stopped taking this seriously. Congratulations. Go on. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, no, it originates from that because if you look at like Batman as a comic, mm. the Joker always commits a horrible crime, does terrible things that would be like inhuman to even most serial killers. They couldn't think of doing the stuff that he does. Mm. And then he goes to court and he always gets done on the insanity plea. 
And people tried to dissect, like, how is this possible? Because obviously he's capable of standing trial. Yeah. And the only reason he's doing this is that he must be able to fake insanity to get put in the asylum and then escape again. I feel like that's a bold claim, but maybe I haven't read into it enough. It's, if you look at the comic lore, I'm not going to go too far into mm-hmm. it, but the, there's a reason these concepts tie together. Okay. So what they also talk about is the fact that at many points he says, none of this matters, life's a joke. Mm. It's all ridiculously stupid and pointless. And the Batman is the obvious. He's the counterpoint of like law and order and sorting things out and compassion and everything like that. And so that's why they clash. So what people started to think of, oh, what if the Joker is fully self-aware about the idea that he is a character in a comic book? Oh. Yeah. So maybe that's why when he's killing all these people and we attribute this weight to him of how could he do that? It's because he knows that none of them are real. They're all just works of art. That's fantastic. It's a really cool theory, isn't it? It kind of makes him a whole new character when you put it in that light. It's great. But, okay, much and all as I know you want to be Batman and fight the Joker and stuff. (laughs) How does this relate to mental health in real life? Okay, this is this is a tough one because it's it's a new concept. Mm-hmm. It was adopted as a term from literally a bunch of comic book nerds slash psychology students who talked about the Joker. Mm-hmm. And it's become kind of widely talked about in a lot of academic circles, and that's what's cool about it. But in order to accept the premise of hypersanity, there's a bit of a build-up to it. So you have to accept, like this hypothetical idea that some of the systems we rely on and institutions that exist don't exist for the purpose of a better world or even a better you, Mm -hmm. especially in mental health. They exist with the goal in mind of instilling in you the value of being a productive member of society, right? I mean, I'm personally acquainted with at least one HR manager. I can get that. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So that's that's what, I mean, if you think about the idea of our entire academic structures of psychology Mm -hmm. and psychiatry that study the human mind, their purpose is to get you to a place where you can go to work every day. Okay, but I think this idea of, you know, we're just churning out workers and our systems and our education specifically Mm -hmm. isn't holistic or nurturing in a way that we would like it to be. I don't think that's a new concept. No, it isn't. But this is why the hypersanity is different, right? Because there's, there's, if you look at the three stages of sanity is when you recognize your own existence, you're aware of it, but you participate in that stuff because you need to. That's the world you live in. That's realism. You need a living, you need money, you need the happiness in some form, you need hobbies, you need all these things. That's, that's sanity. That makes perfect sense. Grounded enough to survive. Exactly. Hypersanity is kind of like a case of huge existentialism, is that you're so aware of how none of this can lead to anything. Like, and it it starts off with the idea of like global warming. Mm. It can move to a nuclear war. It can lead to a bunch of different things. And you just think about even to the stage of, oh, the sun might explode one day. A hypersane person might actually think about all these things and realize that their existence has no meaning whatsoever. I, so I'm trying to visualize this as you're describing it. And (laughs) I'm going to quote, a character from a beloved 90s sitcom, actually. Oh, sure, by I all means. I swear it's relevant. Um, the character Stevie from Malcolm in the Middle. Okay. Who, yeah, Malcolm asked him, you know, oh, you know, how are you so smart? You're a child prodigy, you're a genius. How does it work? How does it feel to have a brain like yours? And he says, my brain is a beehive full of bees, and every single one of those bees has a brain just like yours. And that's kind of how I'm, per, how I'm understanding this. Am I wrong? That it's just a case of like seeing everything, dealing with everything, processing everything on such a huge scale you can't cope. Kind of, yeah. And that's why it, it's it's 
well, first of all, I have to say that it wasn't Stevie that said that. Oh, God, was it not? Stevie and Malcolm had it said to them by the little genius kid. They were oh. like the genius 12-year-olds, and they had a genius 5-year-old who said it to them. In my defense, it's from the 90s. <laughs> oh, it's a serious, obscure one. But I, the image of it that, that's funny for me is a 5-year-old going, and every one of them has a brain <laughs> like yours. <laughs> but um, no, it's exactly like that. It's, it's, it's essentially a higher level of consciousness, which like is what a lot of like Taoist and Buddhist teach teachings will teach you to try and achieve is this higher level of consciousness where you accept your existence and choose to do nothing but good with it yeah because you want your existence to mean something in this void universe kind of thing it's a very very strange one but just to contrast it a bit if you think sanity accepting your existence wanting happiness satisfying your needs living in your body yada 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 insanity the inability to process the reality of the world that you're in and hypersanity, which is processing it at such an alarming rate that it becomes meaningless. I mean, yeah, no, I get that. I can see how that would be an issue. It's fascinating to it me. It really is. And again, you know, not to not to be too sane here about it, <laughs> not to get too small picture, uh-huh. <laughs> but I dealt with this a little bit. So in college, I was introduced to this a little bit. We're discussing... You know, how do you best support children who have exceptional academic ability? Mm-hmm. And it's something that hit a nerve with me because I, I think I experienced a little bit of it. I definitely saw it when I was in school. These kids who are referred to as being too smart for their own good, but they're not. They're too smart for the environment they've been placed in. It's very common. Yeah. yeah and so they they switch off and it doesn't work for them. I feel like that's a little bit of where we're going with hypersanity, is it? And also with the disproportionate suicide rate amongst people who would be considered to be, I hate to use this word, but gifted. Yeah, I, I think I think if you think that maybe the greatest minds that we might have had, some of the most intelligent we've ever lived, who've committed suicide, mm. that to me feels like a tragedy. Just as someone that kind of values human intellect, yeah. that feels upsetting. And then the other day of seeing children who are told that they're too smart for their own good, where the, what, what's actually happening is that they're fed up with the boring stuff that they've figured out already that you are teaching them. Yeah. So why not teach them something more advanced? Why isn't there another special channel? And There's also the concept of, you know, learn out rather than learn up. Yes, exactly. 100%. I have a kid who's in- incredible at maths. He's years ahead of his class in maths and they had to kind of sit us down and go through it. Now he's learning out. So we're going into, we're touching on like coding and programming and puzzles and stuff like that. Because if you keep giving him harder sums, he'll just keep doing harder sums and get so bored and disengage. But this is the thing is the education system has greatly improved since mm. not only we were kids, but since people were kids in the 70s, 80s, and even yeah. since like the late 90s and the, the mid 90s, schools have terribly improved with this. But I just think it's worth noting the idea of this concept of hypersanity because it emerging could be quite a key figure in changing the way the education system works even further. Absolutely. You know? And even actually to at least some kind of degree, the way we process and care for psychiatric pa- patients. Yeah, commonly. And and it is often a comment about people experiencing insanity can experience elements of hypersanity as well. Okay. Um, yeah, it can happen. You become ultra perceptive. But the problem is, is that you're perceiving the information and then your body is churning out gobbledygook. Yeah. Say you might be able to look at a sequence of lights outside in the garden and figure out that the, the, uh, the fuse box is broken. Mm. But then for some reason, your mind makes the leap that if you blink at the same time as the lights, they change. 
And so if you blink at the fuse box, you'll fix the lights. That's the kind of way the insane brain works. But yeah. there's an element of hypersanity too, because you're taking that information no one else does. Mm. But I just wanted to say that I think it's an interesting concept. It's, it's not accepted as a diagnosis. It's just something that's emerged and it's interesting. It's, and it's an idea that people are floating. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's a good one. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Mm. And I think we are coming close to the end now. Yep. Um, so if you don't mind, do you mind if I issue some final words about mental health just for a second? Please go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that, like, we've discussed a bunch of different stuff in this podcast, but fundamentally, it's my belief as someone who's been a patient in, in the Irish facilities and, you know, have talked to doctors in the other facilities abroad, that it's absolutely terrifying to try and find whatever your path is to coping with your mental health issues because there's so many avenues there's so many different ways to explore there's medication no medication meditation yada there's so much stuff but there is always a combination of one or more of those things that will work for you and get you to the place you need to be so if you're feeling something you know doubtful go to your doctor make the call and do it because you know going it alone is never as good as going it with the entire backing of the hse behind you Absolutely, like something is always better than nothing. And I, we talked earlier about it being a journey mm-hmm. and a process and a long-term conversation. Mm. You can't get anywhere until you step onto that road. Yeah, 100%. You need to start making progress in order to get somewhere. And don't beat yourself up too much if the first step doesn't work. For sure. The second yeah. step might. It takes a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, well, thanks very much, Emma. This has been great. And I have some final words about this because... I thought your final words were your final words. Hmm? Hmm? Those are my final words on mental health. This is slightly I mean, unrelated. good luck doing a comedic monologue after this. Yeah, and that's why I chose to go as dark as humanly possible with it. Of because course, I think yeah. any of the people who've experienced the levels of depression that both you and I have know that there is true comfort in gallows humour. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So, we've come to the end, or, for some, the beginning. The beginning of another day where you have to comb through your own depression and decide if its origins lie within your own mind, or if they're a result of your external factors. Your job, your love life, that documentary you watched on Tuesday. It could even be that you're just constipated because you had instant noodles for dinner last (laughs) night. Probably while watching a Japanese itame create the perfect yakisoba on YouTube. One thing is certain, though. If your own current depression is based upon an existential fear, like, say, the fear of a coming apocalypse, then please take comfort in knowing that you aren't depressed. You are justifiably sad. (laughs) Because you're right. It is all coming to an end. The climate is coming to get us. We've angered it by not paying enough attention to it and by taking too much. I often wonder why people are capable of worshipping an economy with the same religious sentiments as a vengeful god, and yet never think to treat our planet this way. And while boiling our seas and oceans will at the very least allow us to pass on with the aroma of free de la mer in our nostrils, I'm struggling to find any other positive notes about this. So, for a laugh, let's imagine that it doesn't end that way. Imagine our scientists manage to pull off some incredible feat and save us from climate collapse. What then? Do things go back to normal? That's not right either. As I've said before, the governments and lawmakers have deified an economy that elevates and protects the 1%, and I think they need to learn their lesson. So, I say bring it on. Let the climate collapse and let humanity fall. 
Let each cretin that chose to hoard wealth, the same way that I hoard my victim's jewellery, <laughs> burn in the biblical flames that envelop this spinning rock. I should also at this moment warn you that I am incredibly unlucky. I am the only person I know that can play the vending machine three times in a row and still not win a Twix. I alone have stood in two separate dog turds at the same time, launching my body into a sort of ski, ended in both tears and laughter. Their laughter. And my tears. And it is this lack of fortune that makes me believe that I'm entirely wrong. The climate may collapse, and the majority of humanity may die. But just as the first billionaire faces their demise, and just as my moment of cathartic reprisal arrives, and it will have all been worth it, God will materialise on Earth and end the chaos. God will, of course, reveal himself in the form of an egomaniacal sadist. And because he's been worshipped for millennia by gun-loving, anti-choice jingoists, he will have developed a soft spot for the billionaires, because they've done so much in propping up anti-social justice causes. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to get across here is that life isn't fair, and death isn't fair, and, and the apocalypse won't be fair either. And there's nothing you can do about it, so... For the sake of the gun-loving, anti-choice God, shag your partner, drink your wine, and get the popcorn out, because even though it won't be fair, it can still be one hell of a show. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>